We're back. I have August with me again, and we're going to go over this last section, section three of Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World, which is, we kind of to celebrate, it's out in the world now. It's had its little graduation party. I bought balloons. I waved goodbye. Like we've talked about, it's fully grown and out in the world doing its job. Congratulations. I hope your book launch was a great success. I have to ask you to share what you texted me when I asked you the next day how the book launch had gone. Like you had shifted your expectations a bit. Yes. So we'll talk about in this part, but part three of the book um, is kind of about how to handle when things go wrong or the outcomes aren't what you want or, you know, all of that kind of like fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And I think I shared one of our chapters is optimize for not quitting. Yep. And I said, my new mantra is to optimize for not being discouraged. (laughs) Because I don't know, after you publish a book, I don't know if you can actually quit. Like... (laughs) But maintaining my focus and my perspective, is that what you were referring to? Yeah. So congratulations on letting your baby go out into the world and- Full grown. Full grown. All out there. Full grown. And you're not following it around, which is fantastic. You are not a helicopter mom. Good for you. (laughs) Despite my temptation to be. So this section is- is kind of about fear to some degree. It's about when things go wrong. It's about when we're struggling, you know, it could be in our project, in our work. And like the other two chapters, there's, it is technically about life online and being a creative and being an entrepreneur and being a small business owner. But there's definitely, I pulled from some, from personal life, hard lessons learned. One of the things that I love, you talk about when things go wrong, like when the internet decides that you are a horrible person or your product is evil or some combination of evil and horrible wrong. In chapter 18, you talk about when it hits the fan and you have this, I felt very useful, concise, clear, four-step process to deal with it. So the first step is take a breath. The second step is listen and understand, which I think people forget the second half of that sentence at times. (laughs) The third is apologize, but like in a genuine way. And then the fourth step is to fix, repair, and change. Don't just be like, oh, sorry, and then go do it again. That doesn't count. Yeah. What I loved about this is that I feel like this is a great way for to deal with the haters or to deal if you screw up online or whatever else. And I feel like I can use this when I'm ready to like strangle my mother or I'm, you know, or, or I've screwed up with my kid or whatever it is. And I, I just love that you combined everything from the New Testament to Stephen Covey and probably some Brene Brown in there. It was a good combination. Well done in four steps. (laughs) Pulling from the spectrum of influence. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's so tough because we can get pulled into like this hurricane weather system. And you're right, whether it's like our extended family, whether it's with our kids, whether it's online, everything's heightened, everything's elevated, there's this intensity, and we can kind of get pulled into the weather system and and just start reacting and reacting to everything. 
And that's why the first one is like, take a breath, you know, pause, stop, remove yourself. But it's actually, I kind of pull that from like newborn parenting wisdom. Like when you're at the end of your rope and your baby's crying and you're freaking out and panicking and like, and the baby's freaking out and panicking, the conventional wisdom is just like, go lay them in their crib. Mm-hmm. You know, close the door for a minute, go downstairs, take a breath, regain composure, and then you can go back and try to like fix whatever is the matter. But it's hard to repair. It's hard to listen and understand. It's hard to repair if you're in that same frantic energy. And especially to listen and understand. And I didn't go into this in the book. I think I might I might do a little course about it in the Best Life Bundle, but when we're like these events dysregulate us, it actually makes it really difficult for us to process information, makes it hard for us to hear and to process it and to remember, which is why like in a fight, sometimes you get to the end of the fight and you don't actually remember like where it started because it's so hard to intake information when you feel dysregulated, which is why it's so important to like take a break, step outside, regain, you know, help yourself self-regulate before you jump back into the fray. But it's especially true online because you're not, you're not arguing with one person. There might be a hundred people. There might be a thousand people. Like it's a much bigger weather system. And trying to repair a relationship that you may have said the wrong thing about. In our family, we have implemented unilateral timeouts. And it was something that Brene Brown talks about in her organization. Every single person in our organization has the right to call a timeout without explanation. And so in our family, if we start getting heated about something, anyone in the family, probably including the dog, can say timeout. And the rule is you don't say another word. You don't say time out because I don't like you or you're being a twit or you're wrong. You just say time out. And then everyone is supposed to leave the room. And I had been listening to, I can't remember who, but um, some people that have been doing some neuropsychology research. And what they found is that when you are dysregulated, when you're in that fight, flight, freeze, whatever, mm-hmm. it actually takes 30 minutes for those neurotransmitters to chemically process through your body. Mm -hmm. And that only works if you have stopped thinking about it, which was the key for us, right? Because I would say time out and then I would go in my room and I would recount every single way I was right (laughs) and every single way how everybody else was wrong. And at the end of the 30 minutes, I'm more angry than when I started. And it is no not helpful. So for us, it's 30 minutes and you have to do something else. So this is what I love of like your take a breath as an organization, go have a picnic, put your phone in the closet or the freezer. I do that with mine, not intentionally on occasion. <laughs> and I just think that's so useful. And I think we do have this impulse that it has to be immediate, especially online. Yeah. Like people on Twitter are waiting for my response. That is the best time to set down your phone and walk away. Yeah. Let's double back. So we talked about this real quickly, but the idea of optimizing for not quitting. This was a quote I heard Brian Harris say, said the the number one thing to optimize for when you start a project is not quitting. 
And that probably saved me like a dozen times throughout my creative entrepreneurial journey, just just in the last six years, probably a dozen. It's probably twice a year where that like helps me kind of take that breath and be like, okay, let's take a step back and let's see what, you know, what I'm optimizing for that's wanting, honestly, it's wanting to cause me to, to quit or to give up. How do you balance that? optimizing for not quitting you talk in here about you can have audacious goals and you're Mm -hmm. also in the same breath talking about this fear setting of okay what is worst case okay I have a plan there we go how do you find that balance between I mean an audacious goal is right like you're the next Stephen Covey or you're going to write the next New Testament which would probably upset some people Okay, so that might be on the audacious goal category. You have done your fear setting of what's worst case. Where's that? Mm-hmm. Like, where it, uh, it sort of feels like optimizing for not quitting is like this really tricky balance point between the two. Where do you find that? Well, you know, some of the, the next chapters, there's one chapter called Trust the Process. Mm-hmm. And I have a chapter in here about test and scale, which I've talked about you know, a number of times in YouTube videos and my email newsletter. But I think that has to be the focus, you know, not so much, okay, maybe you want those audacious goals. Break that down to what is the process I need to get there? What does that look like? Because that allows us to kind of, un, you know, detach from the outcomes a little bit. So like, I want my book to do really, I talk, I use my book as an example, like, okay, so it's like 15 people read this. That's like my fear setting, like worst case scenario. But I do have these like great audacious goals for it. So instead of focusing on those outcomes, what's the process? Mm. Like, what are the mechanics that have to happen in order for me to promote my book? And my, one of my biggest processes, you know, this year is doing podcast interviews on other people's show. So I said, okay, I want to try to do 50 to 100 podcast interviews, which is like one to two a week. So I I set up that kind of realistic. Week by week, it's realistic. Long term, it's a lot of interviews. But I created that process behind the scenes. Like I hired someone to help me coordinate. Like we have the process behind the scenes. And so I just have to show up every week, do one or two interviews for, I don't know, the rest of my life. Because <laughs> I'm going to keep writing books. It's it's going to be ongoing. But finding, for me, it was finding that kind of marathon pacing mm-hmm. or like that hiker's pace. I went hiking um, actually with one of the listeners of my podcast a week or two ago. We went hiking in Glacier and we were doing this hike at the very top, Logan Pass, and the elevation, is, it's really high up there. And so the air is just really thin and it's super easy to get winded, even though it's not a very technical or difficult hike. Right. And I kept messing up the pacing. So I was leading the group and I would go too fast and we would have to stop. And I would go too fast and we would have to stop. And finally, I just had to apologize. I was like, I'm so sorry, I cannot figure out the pacing at this like, elevation. And the hikers walking next to me just started laughing because 
it's tricky. You know, you have to find the pacing, um, but it takes some trial and error of what is sustainable. What is the process that works for me that would get me to those outcomes I'm hoping for? I think that's a great way to talk about it, that it's pacing. And the other part that I just heard you talk about was you have a broad definition of success. So 15 readers is your minimum. That's your fear setting limit. And then you have this audacious goal of changing the entire world or whatever your audacious goal may be. Anything in between there is a win. Yeah. Like that's fantastic. You have opened yourself up to great success and you have allowed that to be a lot of different things. Just like you got to the top of the pass, I'm assuming without killing off any of your hiking people, (laughs) that's a success. That is not a good way to lose audience members. For those of you listening at home, do not (laughs) not cause aneurysms at elevation. Not a cool way to build your audience. But that does bring us to the test and scale thing of, you know, (laughs) trial and error. You have this balance between test and scale and go big or go home. I lived in Texas for a hot second, and that is Texas. Go big or go home. And I got to live that for a while. It does not work for me. But the test and scale thing is new. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of where those are in the world? Yeah, I think there's maybe human nature, maybe American nature, maybe Texas-influenced nature (laughs) of this go big or go home. Like, if I'm going to do something, I have to do it all the way. and the lie that holds us back and is unhelpful is that you have to figure out every single detail before you start. You have to you have to know the perfect plan all the way to the finish line before you take the first step. And you have to make it a big risk, a big showing, you know, you're going to quit your job and take out a huge business loan and write like the 100 page business plan. And then you're going to go all in on this dream. And it generally crashes and burns. You know, I'm friends with Alan Donegan, who runs Entrepreneur Podcast. And he talks about this all the time in, in the context of building a business like that just doesn't work. Because in the testing and scaling, you take one little step forward. I try to find things for that initial round of tests. Maybe you'll run six or seven that take between one and four hours. Okay. You know, what's something we can do between one and four hours that will give us the information, the feedback, the context, the personal growth, the relationships that we need mm-hmm. to make that next slightly larger test, you know, scale it up just a little bit. Oh, let me think. Should we do this? Yes, we should. Uh, a little sneak peek of testing this test and scale idea is that I've really wanted to start another podcast with a co-host doing nonfiction book reviews, like personal growth, business, personal finance, kind of in the self-help improvement genre. And I wanted to have a co-host, but it's so hard. <laughs> to make a co-host. And so I said, how about I just record, what can I do in one to four hours? How about I just record a bunch of episodes with different friends and see how it goes. And in that little test, we'll get more information. They'll get more information. How does it work in the schedule? How long does it take? Do we enjoy it? Am I cut out for this? And I'm very happy to say 
that August is going to co-host the podcast. And so that should be out in 2022 next year. But testing and scaling versus we could have, I could have come up with a hundred page business plan and then pick someone with like, who I had never even recorded a podcast, who'd never tried, we've never practiced. But you just can't know everything you need to know before you start is the basic premise. I think your willingness to share that example of your giant business plan in that purple folder that you talk about Mm. in the book a couple of times, that was the ultimate go big or go home. I mean, and wow, (laughs) did that become an object lesson for so many things? Like procrastination is not progress and this go Mm -hmm. big or go home. And you poured your heart and soul into what was in that purple folder which is now still safely in a purple folder somewhere from what I understand. And and you're right. It, I wouldn't necessarily say it crashed and burned because the, it was never implemented. It didn't have a chance to burn. Unfortunately, yeah. you had made it so which, big. That's a really important distinction. One of the traps of the go big or go home is that it's easy to get stuck at the starting line because then you don't risk failure. Mm-hmm. Because then it can't really crash and burn because you're never letting it get off the ground. <laughs> like It gets like an inch off the ground and then it sets back down. But it's a lot of reason why people procrastinate and they don't make progress because they think everything has to be figured out and I have to have it all perfect. And I have to like have this roadmap for the next five or 10 years before I get going. Yeah. And this testing and scale, I love this little one to four hour idea. Again, this book is great with some really tangible things to wrap my head around. So I've read a lot of nonfiction, self-help, whatever. And they'll be like, you should take small steps. Well, could you define that a little more? Because my small step might be, might be picking out the perfect post-it notepad to write my sentences on, like you talked about when you started writing this book, which color, which stickiness, which size. And I can sit there for a long time. Okay. One to four hours, like, let me have that chunk. And I I just thought that was so powerful and so helpful. I find people are oftentimes more creative and have more clarity within specific parameters. What do you mean? You know, like in that one to four hour parameter, if I say a small step, it could be like a thousand different things and we get stuck on what that could look like. But if we squeeze it down one to four hours, what can actually happen in one to four hours that would like move this ball down the field just a tiny bit? And then our mind finds like 10 good options. Sometimes we need constraints to like get some clarity. I think it's true. I remember I was in admissions coach counselor for a while when I was working in college and we would have these parents come in before the kids would start in the fall and the parents were like oh I don't want my kid to work while they're in college like that's their thing and we said look here's the reality the studies show that if a kid has a part-time job not 80 hours a week but 10 they will do better in school because they're mm-hmm. you no longer have 10 hours at night to do your homework you have four and you will be more productive and you will be more focused So I think that makes sense. Like if I say to myself, I have an hour to do a blog post, I will probably knock it out in an hour. If I'm like, oh, I need to do one this week. Yeah, it's just never going to happen. So I like the constraint. 
One of the things you talked about the very beginning of this section in chapter 17 was that you allowed yourself to become a creator only if you would also allow yourself to be fully human in the process. Talk to me about that. That just made me want to like hug you and cry and celebrate your truth. So (laughs) tell me more. I kind of break my 20s into two categories as far as like my personal growth. And the the pivot point in the middle was my month-long stay in the mental health facility. There's pre-breakdown and post-breakdown. Pre-breakdown... I have a lot of things to say about why that didn't work. Uh, That perfectionism, constantly trying to just be the right thing, Mm -hmm. to do the right thing. And instead of being very open and vulnerable and honest about my weaknesses, about the areas I needed to grow. And I realized post breakdown that I could. I could funnel my energy into perfectionism or I could funnel my energy into progress. Mm-hmm. But those two things could not happen simultaneously. I couldn't actually make progress while trying to be perfect. Progress is made in the messiness and it's made when you admit you're struggling and it's made in community of like, I'm trying to do hard things here and I'm outside my comfort zone. Um, And I just realized the cost. It wasn't even so much that I was trying to pretend to be perfect, but like I was trying to act perfect. You know, an example, if, if maybe there was a person that was doing something that was hurtful for me, you know, in our relationship, perfection looked like, okay, I'm just not going to let it bother me. I'm just, I can deal with this. Like, I don't, I just shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't feel upset. Like, I should just act like it's okay. And progress was more like, this is broken and unhealthy. And like, maybe we need to have a conversation. Maybe we need to have some boundaries. But like, I have to admit this isn't, this isn't working. And that's not, like the fact that it, is hurting me isn't a character flaw on my part that I just have to ignore. And so when I started writing again, I knew the cost of kind of pretending this perfection or striving for this perfection of what I assumed everyone else wanted me to be, what everyone else wanted me to do. And I knew once I got on the internet, that's a lot more everyone else. It's a lot of people and it's impossible to make everyone happy. It's impossible to like hit the standard for everyone. And I just said, that's not going to work for me. It's not helpful for my sobriety. It's not helpful for my mental health. It's not helpful uh, for my sleep. I just have to be, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this as fully me or else it's a non-starter. I love that, that you have to be fully you in this. You talk about later in the book, uh, chapter 21, about that your identity is not your outcome. And I feel like part of like some of what you just talked about is that you are you. You are Jillian. You are phenomenal and beautiful and messy. 
and have baggage and are changing people's lives. All of those things are simultaneously true. And your blogs being grammatically 100% correct, to use an earlier example in the book, is not your identity. That outcome of a perfectly spelled whatever doesn't have to be your identity. It shouldn't be your identity. And your ability to, to pull those two apart, I think, gives all of us permission to have our identity be authentic and intentional and unique without the need to please everyone. Because as you said on the internet, there's a whole lot of everyone. Yeah. And they will all <laughs> have their own opinions about what you should be. So I love that, the difference between like separating perfection and progress, identity and outcome. I think that that's incredibly powerful and a beautiful gift to sort of give the world. Can we switch to chapter 22? Can we move on? Yes. So in this, you're talking about that what does create your identity is your actions. And when we look back and we're talking about intention and action, I think especially in a public sphere, like online content creation, it is what, that's such a hard line, right? Like it's what you do, it's your actions, reflect your identity or create your online identity, but your online identity isn't who you are. It's this piece and it's like Gwen Stefani is not the pop star, right? She's a human being too, I've been told. So I don't know why Gwen (laughs) Stefani is the one that just came to mind can't even think of who she is right now. But again, where is that balance, right? Like you're able to weave these things together. Can you talk me through that a little bit more? Yeah. When we talk about the process, the progress, the actions, the trouble is even if you do technically everything right, you might not get the outcomes you're hoping for. Mm -hmm. Like outcomes aren't guaranteed to anyone, (laughs) Ever. Even Gwen Stefani, apparently. Even Gwen Stefani. And so it's it's a very unsafe place to anchor your identity mm-hmm. into outcomes that you don't have complete control over. And so if you're going to, you know, create kind of a safe harbor for for anything, I think it should be in your actions and in the process. You know, for example, in the book, like I could have outcomes that I'm hoping for the book, but it's not helpful for my identity to pin it to those. Um, Instead, I can pin it to my actions in the process of, am I writing every day? Am I putting down ideas? Am I showing up? Am I creating that creative space for my writing? Mm -hmm. Then I'm a writer. Even if I'm not a talented writer, even if I'm not an articulate writer, even if I'm not a best-selling writer, even if, you know, you don't have to have those other things to have your identity centered around, around your actions. And so if you have to pin it somewhere, if you have to anchor your identity somewhere, let it be in the things that you do. Like last episode, I kind of felt silly afterwards. I was being like so braggy about being a good friend. <laughs> um, but I take I take that back, not in that it's like an outflowing of my personality. Because mm-hmm. my personality, honestly, can be a little weird and off-putting. Like I am not a great dinner party guest. <laughs> I'm like, I'm never invited back. But instead, in my actions, like I've got the receipts for my actions. Mm. And so 
you can feel more confident in your identity if you tether it to those actions. I like that. I liked the idea of if I write every day or whatever else, then I am a writer. I can define it that way. I love the idea that if I choose kindness every time or as many times as I can, then I am a kind person. Then I get to, there's a clear connection between actions and identity because the actions are completely in my control. I get to choose what I do. And it's the only thing we have control over, right, is our own mm-hmm. whatever. I also, in that chapter, you talk about Brene Brown keeps a slip of paper in her wallet of whose opinion she actually cares about in her life when you're talking about anchoring yourself in your actions and who you give a seat at the table to. I was curious how many names are on your slip of paper. Don't tell me the names because we don't want to call anybody out. But I was just curious. How many do you have? It's less than 10. But I would say, well, no, I would take it back. I would say in my personal life, yeah, probably less than 10. Uh, In my professional life, for my work, there's a number of people, I'd say maybe 30 people that I will intentionally invite to the table to like help me solve a problem. Mm. Even in the writing of this book, I had written it, I had cut it all apart, I had rewritten the whole thing. And I thought like, oh, we're in the home stretch now because I had been editing for like six months. And I reached out to an editor and I was so excited about working with them. Like I had basically in my mind convinced myself, this is the person. I have found her. This is perfect. She will edit all of my books for the rest of my life. Like I had like gone big or gone home, like in my mind to the extreme degree. And my budget was like two to four thousand dollars. And it came back like five times that. Oh my. Um, yeah. Oh my. It was not, <laughs> it was not the number I was anticipating. And so there were like a couple people I reached out to and I said, like, I can't figure this out. Um, I feel so overwhelmed with this decision. I need other voting members. Like I need other people at this table because it can't just be me to sort through this decision. I like the idea of having different lists. For different parts of your life. I think that's a great way to remind yourself that your professional world is not your personal world. If I have two different committees, it makes it seem safer to be myself and both, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to have one piece of paper, but I'll have two sides. Got it. <laughs> okay, go. I'm all in now. I'm all in. So I wanted to end on this little tucked away paragraph that you have between section two and section three in the book. Would you read page 101? Yes. So at the top, it says a small request. If you have enjoyed this book so far, would you mind leaving a review on Amazon? My goal is for this book to be the essential guide for every creative or entrepreneur who shares their work online. Positive reviews on Amazon go a long way to helping more people discover these ideas. So I just needed to bring that out for a few reasons. One, leave a damn review. That's just me. <laughs> Jillian can't say that. I can be a little bit more directive. Get on Amazon, leave a review. Okay. But number two, I loved how you were able to turn this book into this amazing object lesson for all of your readers. Like in that moment, you made the implicit explicit. This is really what I want. 
This is really how it would help. You asked in a generous way. You also put it two-thirds of the way into the book so that if someone has gotten that far, they probably liked the book. So like you managed everyone's expectations. You set yourself up for success. You had clear boundaries. With sort of like everything you've been teaching us to do in that one little paragraph, I thought that was a pretty cool trick. Yeah, it was, all of that was very thoughtful. And I think it's important in general, you know, we talk about in the first, the first section, clear as kind, Mm -hmm. you know, so very clearly stating my intention for the book, very clearly asking how someone could help meet that intention for the book. And I did put it partway through one. I figure if you're still reading, you're enjoying it. But also I wanted it to feel like it was in the context of relationship. If if someone didn't know me before, if they'd never read any of my work, but two-thirds the way through this book, uh, we're pretty close now. Like you know a lot about me. <laughs> we've we've spent, you know, a couple hours together. We formed hopefully a little bit of my work and you has, has created some relationship there and maybe maybe that generosity that my work has given you can be reciprocated to my work. So very well done. And again, for those of you that missed it the first time, write a review (laughs) on Amazon. Thank you all. Yeah, they are bizarrely important. And I think probably non-writers don't realize that, uh, especially verified Amazon reviews, are fed into an algorithm for what books Amazon recommends to people and where things show up in searches. So if you want your book to be discovered... Needs a lot of verified Amazon reviews. Could you really quick explain what a verified Amazon review is for those of us that don't know what you're talking about? So that's for people who've purchased it with their Amazon account, and then they go in through the same account and leave a review. And so after the review, it'll say verified. Got it. Versus like if you, I don't know, picked it up at a used bookstore or something or borrowed it from a friend, it's still good to have those reviews because it creates social proof, but it doesn't weigh as heavily into Amazon's algorithm. So ah. there's a little sneak peek behind in the, the author world of playing to Amazon's algorithm preferences. So thank you so much for co-hosting these three episodes with me, August. This was a really fun test and scale experiment of hopefully good things to come in the future. Mm-hmm. And for everyone else, I hope you've checked out the book. I hope you're enjoying it, especially if you're creative or an entrepreneur, or if you just really wanted to engage with these ideas and, you know, 20% of it is not applicable, but you like the other 80%. I'll take it. That works too. Just remember, you don't have to be perfect to make progress. Call back to the point in my life where I discovered that truth. (laughs) (laughs) This is born out of my my pivotal moment in my 20s. You don't have to be perfect to make progress. You just have to be a little bit more courageous every day because adventure awaits.